0: Today we want to look at what it means to be saved by grace, and uh, as we see here in Romans chapter 11, uh, it's mostly talking about the remnant of believers who are left behind and uh, how they trust in God as well, and Paul starts off there in verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept For myself, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so we want to focus on that verse this morning, verse 6. And uh, it's important that we understand what it means to be saved by grace. Amen? Such an important thing. And when you hear that word, a lot of times the word grace, a lot of different things may come to your mind. Second um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's Second Timothy 1 9. So that supports what we read over even in Ephesians where Paul writes that we are chosen in Christ. He said, blessed, verse 3, Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so Paul comes to this verse and he says, wait a minute, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. And so when we stop and we focus on this verse, the word grace obviously pops out, it stands out to us. And um, a lot of people have defined grace in, in a lot of different ways, but I think there's two things basically that... As a believer, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have to understand two things. First of all, you have to have a profound sense of your own personal sin, of your own unworthiness before God. In other words, we don't bring anything to the game when we get saved. We have nothing. We have nothing to offer. Absolutely nothing. And see, we need to be reminded of that. That there is a real lostness to our soul because we are steeped in our sin. The Bible says we're stuck in it like miry clay. If you've ever been stuck in miry clay, you know what that's like. Growing up in Pennsylvania, we had quite a bit of property, and we had a big pond, about a half-acre pond in front of our house. And in summertime, it'd get hot, and we'd go down there, and my nephews and I would play around. And I remember one time we got the idea of squeezing our feet down in the clay. And it was all but we could do to get out. Then we did something really weird. We took the clay and we, <laughs> we covered our bodies with clay. Weird, right? And we had these two big pillars down on Fairview Drive at the bottom of our <laughs> driveway. And we climbed up on top of them. And we sat there like, a, like some kind of statue. And the cars would drive by and they'd look and they, whoa, what's going on there at the conferences? What's that? But I remember that clay was in our pores for days, even though we could rinse it off. It was kind of weird once it dried because you're kind of like, whoa, it's kind of like cement, but you could break out of it, rinse yourself out. We went and took a shower. We took a bath. And even the next day, you could see the reddishness of your skin from the clay because it got in your pores. That's what sin is like. It's captivating. It holds you captive. And the second thing is we need to understand not just a profound sense of our own personal sin and unworthiness before a holy God, but number two, a Christian must be characterized by an overwhelming awareness of the grace of God. You have to understand, folks, that this salvation that we enjoy does not come by anything in and of ourselves. It comes from the grace of the Lord. And these two go together, of course, Because if you don't have the proper sense of sin, you're never going to appreciate grace. That's why it's so important as believers when we're out evangelizing that we don't just go out and and offer grace to everybody. Because that grace is not going to mean anything if they don't have any profound sense of their own sinfulness before a holy God. And so what do you have to do first? You have to explain that, you know what, we're steeped in our sin. The Bible says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's nobody that seeks after God. Our good works are like filthy rags before we come to Christ. And then hopefully they understand, wow, okay, I'm in a real fix here. I need some help. Then you can say, well, you know what? God has provided that help through the cross, through what he's done on Calvary. See, you're not saved because of who you are. You're not saved because somehow you're gifted and God needs you on his team. God's pretty sufficient. He's totally sufficient in and of himself. The only reason we're saved is by his grace, by his love. And so when you stop and you think of that, that word grace did some computer searching this week. My Logos program. There's only nine occurrences of that word in the Old Testament. This is in the ESV. There's 123 occurrences in the New Testament. Most of them are in Paul's letters, in his sermons. And so when you when you stop and you see that, it's like, wow, this is something that has really, really changed. Um, sometimes we think that the good that we experience from God's hand is somehow merited, somehow we earned it. Because that's the kind of country we have you know the harder you work the more reward hopefully that's how it works doesn't always work that way but usually see but that's not the way it works with god on the other hand the more you appreciate the grace of god the more aware you are of your own sin and you want to be free from it and so what is grace it's been defined a lot of different ways Somebody's defined it, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's kind of a novel way to define it. But that's kind of a, not a sufficient theological definition, you might say. Um, Probably one of the best definitions of grace is what? God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. A.W. Tozer said this, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. See, grace is unmerited. It's undeserving. We need to remind that. Burkhoff Made one more point. He said, Grace is the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man, affected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. That's not a bad definition. See, grace is not merely unmerited favor, it is favor bestowed on who? On sinners who deserve wrath. We don't deserve our salvation. Showing kindness to a stranger is, what? Unmerited favor. Doing good to one's enemies is more of that spirit of grace. In Luke 6, it's explained to us that way. See, grace is not a dormant or some kind of an abstract quality. But it's something that's active. It's something that should be working in and through us. It's a principle, really. The grace of God has appeared, Titus 2.11. If you turn over there, Titus 2.11. Titus 2.11, it says this. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation and instructing us. All right, the grace of God has appeared. How did it appear? It appeared through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some kind of blessing that, that lies there dormant until we appropriate it or something. Grace is God's sovereign initiative to sinners. He reached out to us. That's what you can read about over in Ephesians 1, 5-6. And you know what? Grace is not even a one-time event. Grace is something that's continuous in the life of a believer. Romans 5.2 says that we what? We stand in grace. We stand in the grace of God. It says through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand so the grace of God is not some abstract thing that doesn't have any impact on our life or while well, we're just saved by grace and then we kind of move on no it's something that is active in our lives or should be each and every day over in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9 We've come to understand that the entire Christian life is driven and it's empowered by grace. It says it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. I don't know if I like that much, but I like food, So, but I get the point. We need to have that, that, that gracious experience that makes us spiritually strong. Food isn't going to do that for us. It also says in Second Peter 3.18, Peter says that we should what? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's not something that's dormant. It's not something that's stagnant. It's not something that saves you way back here and doesn't affect you. No, it's something that plays a part in your life each and every day. So you might want to define grace as the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. That's kind of a summary of all those definitions. Grace is the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. Now, the other side of grace, or another picture of grace, is the mercy of God. We know that mercy, sometimes people get grace and mercy mixed up. We'll just define grace shortly here, unmerited favor, something that God gives us that we don't deserve. Mercy is what? God withholding judgment or evil that we do deserve. Grace is God giving us a blessing or something good that we do not deserve. That is a, a real uh, significant factor in our lives when you stop and think about it. Paul frequently contrasted grace with the law. We've gone through Romans; he does it in Galatians as well. But he was very careful to say that you know what—grace does not make the law null and void. It doesn't make the demands of of God's law uh, mean nothing. Rather, it fulfills the righteousness of those laws. Look at Romans chapter 6. We've gone through this, but just to kind of do a little review here. Romans 6, all the way back to verse 14. Romans six fourteen, It says, For sin will have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And then Paul asks one of his famous questions. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under the grace? By no means. So then he goes on and he talks about that. But it's important to understand that just because we're under grace, it doesn't give us a license to sin. It should give us a motivation to do just the opposite. Grace has its own law, a higher liberating law. In Romans 8, 2, it says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from what? From sin and death. And so this new law of grace kind of emancipates us sets us free from sin and death. Paul says in Romans um, 6, verse 1 and 2 there, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, there's a freedom that comes when you experience the grace of God. Grace reigns through righteousness, he says in Romans 5.21. So that is the good news of the gospel. The idea that, that God gives us grace. That God has acted on his behalf to set us free from sin. Not just the consequences of sin, but from sin. From the very power and then eventually the very presence of sin. One day we'll never know... The experience of temptation. That day's coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. We won't know a stray thought. We won't know a misspoken word. We won't even understand a false motive because we'll be perfect in Christ's present. Guilt will be gone, and with it, shame will always be, what? With the Lord. And so we need to understand that God's grace is a grace that helps us in our daily living as Christians. Titus 2.12, Paul says there that he enables us through grace to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires, so that we can enjoy a sensible, righteous, and godly life in this present age. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So God is, grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God doing good for us even though we don't deserve it. And so we need to be reminded of that. 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Paul says that my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. See, it's grace, the grace of God that gets us through the difficult times in life. Someone also defined grace as God's sufficiency or God's fulfillness in the life of a believer. He also said in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound in every good work. See, that's our position in Christ, beloved. God's grace supplies that sufficiency For our Christian lives. And grace is this constant theme throughout the Bible. I mean, it it basically comes to the forefront in John chapter 1 verse 17. John chapter 1 in verse 17 It says, for the law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. So this word, charis in the Greek, means favor, means blessing, means kindness. It's something that we receive from God, but it's also something that we are called upon okay, to share with others. This should be a principle that's in your own life and extended to others. Grace is the gift of God as expressed in his actions of extending mercy, loving kindness, and salvation to people. Grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless. God is gracious in action. And it's not only in the New Testament, but it's also in the Old Testament as well. But the New Testament anticipates the full expression of God's grace. So grace and works, according to this verse in verse 6, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. What's Paul doing? He's, he's drawing up a, a, an illustration to say, you know what? These things are mutually exclusive. They're mutually exclusive. I mean, when you stop and you think of grace and works, they're at polar ends of the universe. We saw where grace came by Jesus Christ in John 1.17. Ephesians 2.8.9 says that we're saved by grace. Through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by grace. We sing a song once in a, once in a while that words go, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what that means. It means God is, is giving you the righteousness of Christ so that you can stand before a holy God and not fear retribution, not fear his wrath. Because why? You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He justifies you by his grace. Romans 5.15 says that our salvation is a gift of God's grace. We don't earn it. Romans 5.20 says grace is greater than our sin. We sang about that. I think it was last week we sang the the hymn. Romans 6.14, all believers are under grace, not law. I think sometimes believers need to remind themselves of that because I've met some believers that frankly think that, you know, well, they're under grace, but everybody else is under law. Very legalistic in their mindset. We need to be willing to extend grace to people. First Peter 5, 1 Peter 5.1 says that God is the God of all grace. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says God's grace is sufficient it's capable of sustaining us under trial under infirmity under sickness when our hearts hurting god's grace has appeared to all men titus 2:11 god's grace characterizes god's throne and god's grace will be given to help us it tells us in hebrews 12 or hebrews 4:16 excuse me do you know that you need God's grace to serve Him? Over in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse twenty-eight says this Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and With reverence in all. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. See, we need God's grace in order to serve Him in our lives. James 4, 6 says that grace is given to who? The humble. That grace isn't doled out to the proud. See, that's why when you read through the Gospels and you see some of the interactions that Jesus had with people, whenever He interacted with someone who wasn't a believer... What did he do? It depended on who the person was. It depended on who their, what their heart was like. If their heart was already broken over their sin, then what did God, Christ do? Christ extended grace. Think of the woman at the well. Many occasions, people were broken over their sin. Jesus ran into them. Well, he didn't have to give them the law. Why? Because they were already broken down. But when he ran into the Pharisees and he ran into the religious type, they thought they were all that spiritually, And they thought somehow that their self-righteousness was going to save them. That God, that Christ gave them what? He gave them the law. He didn't give them grace. Why? Because they weren't broken over their sin. See, sometimes we think we're doing people a favor when we run into somebody who doesn't know Christ and, oh, you know, God loves you and God... Well, no. If they're a sinner, they need to understand that they're under the wrath of God. See, we don't, we don't serve this lovey-dovey God that just looks the other way because He loves everybody. You know, the Bible says that you can be under one of two parents. You can be under God as your father, right? Or you can have who? Satan as your father, the devil. There's only those two. There's not more than two. So it's important that we understand that because sometimes we go out in the world and we evangelize and we think that everybody's, you know, God's the father of everybody. Well, doesn't God just love everybody? Well, in a sense that he's provided salvation, he's provided a way out of their sin. He's created them, he's given them this creation. There is a common grace. It rains on the what? The just and the unjust. The sinners enjoy, <clears throat> unforgiven sinners who are outside of Christ, enjoy the same sunshine that we do. I mean, sometimes you may wish that it was kind of like the uh, Charlie Brown the, the Charlie Brown cartoon, you know, where you see Pigpen and there's this cloud, you know, or I think it's Pigpen, right, with the cloud following him around or whatever. Um, it, it's just kind of crazy. Well, that's not the way it is. Everybody gets the benefits of, of certain things. But grace, it says, is given to the humble. So when we share Christ with people, we need to make sure that they're humbled before a holy God first. That they understand that there's no way out of the mess in which they find themselves steeped in their sin other than the sacrifice of Christ. Well, 1 Peter 4.10 also says that spiritual gifts come from the manifold grace of God. You know, we all possess at least one spiritual gift. At least one. Most of you possess more than one. And God wants to have you use them to build up the body of Christ. And so it's, it's important that you understand not only what your spiritual gift is, but also how to use that within the body of Christ. Because there's no, Jesus doesn't save you just to sit in the stands and be a spectator. That's not why he saves you. He saves you to get down on the field, roll up your sleeves and get dirty for him. And sometimes we forget that, and there 's no age limit to this involvement. you know some people think well i 've been a Christian for <clears throat> fifty years i 've been in the church sixty years i've you know I'm retired. i 'm retired you don 't retire from being a believer you don 't retire <clears throat> from serving others within the body of Christ now obviously due to age, due to physical uh, restraints, whatever your, your service may be a little different than when you were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. But you know what? Don't ever think that, Oh, I've done it, been there, done it. I don't have to do anything. Oh yes, you do. You're called to serve the body of Christ just like everybody else. And that comes under that manifold grace of God. Second Peter also says in verse, uh, chapter three, verse 18, that believers are exhorted to grow in grace to grow in grace. What does that mean? It means, you know, to be more gracious. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was not very gracious at all. I'd run around telling people they're going to hell. You're going to hell. You need to come to Christ. And and it was very offensive to people. And I didn't even know what I was talking about half the time, you know. And I think that we need to understand that it's, it's, a, it's a process. We need to learn to be more gracious with people. I remember even when I graduated from, from Bible college and in and, and, and the first church I served in as a youth pastor, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I didn't really think I knew more than I, I, I did. But I remember talking to, a, you know, couples or talking to parents about their children. I was single. I had no kids. I was, you know, happy, happy, happy just in life. You know, I had no concerns concerning this world. Um, that's just the way it was. But I remember sitting with parents and, you know, lecturing them over their, over their children or their marriage, talking. And I thought, why am I, I, don't, I have no qualification to do this. You know, all I could do is bring a principle from the word of God and say, look, here's what the Bible said. I couldn't speak from experience. And I remember after, after we got married and, and, and everything important, then I understood, wow, this is what it means to be married. Wow, this is what it means to be a parent. This isn't that easy. You know, it's not like you just speak the words and the children fall in line. Sometimes they do things that that dishonor you as parents. Sometimes they do things that dishonor Christ. And how are you going to handle that? I can tell you one thing. When I talk to parents today, I'm a lot more gracious than I was 30 years ago. Why? Because I understand life a little more. You know, that's just how it works. And so we need to be reminded of that. It's something we grow in. Also, in Ephesians 1 6, we talked about this. We're, We're chosen before the foundation of the world to the praise of His glory and His grace. And then Ephesians 2 7 says, The Lord will continue to show us in the ages to come the exceeding riches of His grace. I mean, think about that. God's grace is endless, you can't run out. It's not like you're going to the store and, oh, sorry, sometimes I go to the the coffee shop and I forget to bring the money or whatever, and I say, hey, I'll pay you tomorrow, you know, I feel like the wimpy or whatever with the hamburgers, you know, but, um, and I always make good on it, but, uh, you know, see, you never run out of God's grace, your pockets are always full of grace, see, and that's why you, you don't let the enemy beat you up when you're down, because you know what, that's not who you are. In Christ, you have to understand who you are in Christ. That you're, you can be victorious over sin and death. That your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. That He has empowered you with the very Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The power of the Word of God is active in your in your life, and so the exceeding riches of His grace are made available to you. Well, when you stop and you think of all that, that's kind of exciting. But Paul also, Paul tells us, really, that he is a trophy of God's grace. He's an example of God's grace. And I just want to look at a couple of these these verses here this morning. Because it's exciting to see what God does through someone like the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul was... A, 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 a complete example of the grace of God. Think about it. He had been raised in, in Judaism, but his understanding of what required what was required really made him somebody who was uh, self-righteous. And he thought that above all others, he pleased God. And he wanted to please God so bad that as a as a, a Jewish person, he went out and he persecuted the church. He persecuted those that were kind of coming against Judaism because they thought they were the only way. And all of a sudden these, these Christians are coming to Christ. They're being saved. Gentile, Jew, Gentile. And so Paul went around kind of getting rid of them, killing them with, with a zeal. He thought he was doing the right thing. It wasn't a personal thing for Paul. I don't think, I think he just thought, Hey, this is what I need to do. When you stop and you think about it, Stephen was stoned to death and Paul was present there. Can you imagine that? He was there watching these this this individual get stoned to death. If you've ever seen somebody stoned to death, I've watched videos of it. It's horrible. It's not a nice way to go because you don't die right away usually. And the stones continue to fall and hit and finally the body ceases to move. And even though you try to they try to shield themselves from the stones, sometimes they tie them up, and then they stone them so they can't shield themselves. But can you imagine watching something like that? And thinking that, you know what, this is part of my religion. This is I'm doing my duty. That's where Paul was. As a matter of fact, he was holding the coats of those who threw stones. <laughs> he was like, here, yeah, yeah, let, let me hold your coats so you can throw with both hands, you know. I mean, he was really into this. And Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest more of the followers of Christ and probably have more of them killed, stoned. And the Lord appeared to him in a bright light, called him to faith, changed him completely, redirected his energies. And Paul was a, a wonderful picture of the grace of God. In spite of his deep self-righteous attitude, all his vicious acts, all the people that he murdered had killed, God saved him. And he did so graciously. He did so by grace alone. And from the time on, after he was saved, Paul preached the grace of God everywhere to everyone. Like I said, most of the verses in the New Testament that have the word grace in them are in the writings of Paul. And I think the reason is is because he was such a trophy of God's grace, he probably couldn't believe that God saved him. When Acts chapter 20, verse 24, look at what Paul says. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of what? God's grace. Paul understood the grace of God. Romans 1 5, he says, Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Even over in Romans chapter three verse twenty three, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace. Verse twenty four through the redemption that that comes by Christ Jesus. Romans five fifteen says, "For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many." Romans chapter 5 verse 20 and 21 where sin increased grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord or Romans 6:14 these are all Paul's writings sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace or Romans 12:6 we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Or 1 Corinthians one four, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, you know what? God created me the way he created me. I'm not going to try to be somebody I'm not, but it's, who I am is by the grace of God. He's the one that's gifted me. And so I'm going to work even harder because the grace of God is working through me. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, he, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Or 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able. We sing that song, God is able. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Not some, not most, all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound, abound in every good work. See, grace is all-encompassing for the believer. Or Galatians 1.6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I mean, why would you leave a gospel that's filled with God's grace to follow another gospel that's not or that's based on works? Galatians 5.4, Paul says, You who are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Or Ephesians 1, 5 to 8, He predestined us to be adopted as, as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he, listen, lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That word lavish just means just overflow. Like you can't even comprehend it anymore. I remember when Mason was, I think he was just a year old. They spent the Christmas here because Will was deployed. And... Um, I remember, I think it was his first or second birthday, one of these, or Christmases, one of these Christmases, I can't remember which, you know, I just went nuts as grandpa, you know, he, he was into, into uh, Thomas the train. So I think I was kind of living through my grandson because I think I'd buy these things and, you know, bought him all these, these little engines, all this stuff. And, you know, my daughter's like, that's way too much. Ah, it'd be fun. It'd be fun. Well, I remember Christmas morning, you know, he's all excited and he comes down all these gifts. Wow, this is great. Because that's how I grew up. I mean, it was just a lot of stuff going on Christmas morning. And so he starts opening these gifts, you know. Wow, this is neat. the next? You know? and, well, after probably, you know, half hour, you know, he's like, another one, Grandpa? You know, it's like, aren't you excited? Look at all this. I mean, it was way, you know, by the time he, he couldn't even open them all. He was just like comatose on the floor, you know. Uh, it was like just uh, too much for his system. You know, I just lavished him with all these these gifts, which wasn't really wise to do because there's a certain expectation, but which we have not lived up to. So they learned real quick that this was a one-time deal. But um, that's what God does with us. He he lavishes His grace upon us. I mean, what a what a wonderful what a wonderful thing. Um, and then also Ephesians. 2, 4 to 8, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved um, through faith. And then it, it goes on there, it says in, 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 in verses uh, 4 to 8, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Or Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. I became a servant of the gospel, of this gospel, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me, Paul says, to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, you can sense the excitement in this man's life. That, wow, God's grace has touched him and he was radically transformed. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10, to 10, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. Or second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Or Colossians four eighteen, grace be with you. Or First Thessalonians one one, grace and peace to you. Or First Thessalonians five twenty-eight, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Or first Timothy one two, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, these are just part of these. There's, there's probably 81 of these things that are referenced by Paul where grace pops up. It's easy. Just go on the computer. See, his love for this doctrine is explained for us when he says here in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Uh, Charles Haas calls that this verse an, exeget- this, an exegetical comment. In other words, he makes this this list of things in one through five, and then he adds this comment about grace. Um, in verse five, he made it as well. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by what? By grace. And so when you stop and you you think about this, I mean, are we going to trust in God's grace or are we going to trust in our works? And that's what Paul wants us to understand here. I mean, think about it. He just got done using this illustration of Elijah and all these prophets and all this stuff that went on, all the stuff that they did try to appease, appease their God, and it didn't work. And by God's grace... He turned the whole thing around for Elijah. He answered his prayers. And he worked in an incredible way. I mean, grace and works are at total opposites. So if a person is to be saved by grace, it cannot be by their works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. On the other hand, if a person is to be saved by works, it cannot be by grace. Otherwise, work would not be work. And yet, a lot of times, when we look at somebody's salvation, we kind of favor the work end of things. You know, Do you think so-and-so is saved? Well, I don't know. It's like they could never be saved. Look at, you know, look at their work. Oh, that's not good or on the other hand we look at some people's works whether it's um, whoever it may be some people have reached sainthood look at somebody like mother teresa well surely i mean well why why do you say that well look at her look at all she's done well it's not by works <laughs> it's not by works you're saved you know, so we need to be careful about attributing somebody to heaven based, based on their works or attributing them to hell, sending them to hell based on their works. Because anyone is only saved by God's grace. And so when you stop and you, you consider these things, I hope that it will be an encouragement to you as believers That you know what? If you're saved, if God has truly transformed your life, if you've had an encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ, and he's changed you, he's given you the Holy Spirit, and you are active in faith and in grace, you know what? What a wonderful thing to realize that that can never be taken away from you. Because it's given to you by God's grace. It's not given to you based on how you act or what you say or what you think. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 means. So you know what? If you got to heaven based on your own good works, we just have a big boasting party up there. How'd you get here? Oh, I did this. Oh, I did that. I did this. You know? How'd you get to heaven? By the grace of God. By the grace of God. And so when you stop and realize that, it encourages us. Well, quickly as we close, this is a very reasonable doctrine to understand, this amazing grace We call it reasonable, not because we can give a reason why God should be gracious to us, because there is no reason but grace itself. Well, one writer said this, it is necessarily and obviously implied in every other doctrine of the gospel, that is, the grace of God. Think about it. First of all, you're dead in your transgressions. You're dead in sin. Some people think they have a problem with grace. Sometimes they have a problem with election. They don't understand that. But the real problem is not with election. It's not even with grace. It's not even with foreknowledge. But it's with the doctrine of total depravity. It's, it's with the doctrine that says, you know what? We're all lost. We're all steeped in our sin. We're all depraved. We're dead. Some people say, well, I don't believe that. I, they just deny it. Well... You can deny it all you want. It doesn't make it not true. Some people admit the imperfections but argue that it's, it's possible to correct them somehow. Somehow we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves a better person. I've never seen a dead person do that. Or there's the biblical view that we're so hopelessly lost in sin that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves or even to make ourselves better. Before a holy God. We simply need to cry out for the grace of God. Be merciful to me a sinner. The second thing that it says here is. In the gospel you must be born again. You must be born again. You're dead in your transgressions. You have to be born again. You have to be given life. And that happens through the grace of God. When Nicodemus spoke with Christ. He told him. That apart from being born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. It's impossible. A little later, he said you couldn't even enter the kingdom of God in verse 5. Nicodemus had a hard time understanding that because he asked the question in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. But he got the idea. Whatever Jesus was talking about, it was humanly what? Impossible. It had to be done spiritually. So how do you be born again? Jesus gave him the answer in verse 6 to 8. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised again that I'm telling you you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound but you cannot tell where it's coming or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. See if the if the new birth depends on the sovereign working of the of the spirit of God, then it doesn't depend on us. We can no more control that than we can control the wind. Salvation will have to be of God. It must be of grace from the beginning to the end, and then the last thing through faith. If salvation is by grace, and grace is opposed to works, then it is to be saved by grace through faith implies that faith is what? Not a work. How many times have you told people, well, you just got to have more faith? Faith is a gift of God. If it were a work, salvation would be by works. But it's not of works, lest any man should boast. So grace would no longer be grace if it was. Well, what is faith then? Faith is receiving what God gives. It's believing. It's trusting him. It's taking him at his word. Charles, Had, Her, ha, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. Faith is not a blind thing. For faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. See, it's no credit to us to have an eye that looks or a hand that grasps or a mouth that feeds. These are body parts given to us by God. No more is faith a credit to the one who uses it because it was given to them by God. So we see that we need to be utterly dependent upon God and his grace for our salvation. Father, we thank you For this word from the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, that you have not saved us according to our works. We don't have to do the dance to get the hug from you. Lord, you indiscriminately give out your gifts to us through your grace. Because you're a sovereign God and you know best what's for us. And Father, you are so sovereignly in control of this matter of our salvation that you have chosen us even before the foundation of the world. And so we can't have anything to do with it because I don't think any, any of us were there at that point in time. And so, Father, we utterly turn to you and we thank you for the grace that you've bestowed upon us, the salvation that you've granted to us. I pray that we would be motivated to get to know you more, to get to understand our position in Christ. Lord, to come together as the body of Christ whenever we can, to celebrate the grace of God, to celebrate the unity that we have within the body of Christ. And Lord, to put into practice this principle of grace with one another. Lord, as you've been gracious to us, so we're called to be gracious with others. So Father, help us to hold our tongue when we need to hold it. Lead us and guide us by the presence of your Holy Spirit within us to say, to think, to do the right thing, that thing that honors you. To be gracious to that person who may be misunderstood or a little confused. Father, we, we know that all these things come to us as a result of your grace. And Father, we thank you for that and pray that you would just bless our day. Pray that you bring us back together tonight as we celebrate and just... With other believers in the body of Christ, get together and and worship you. Have a time of thanksgiving and worship and and dessert and and fellowship. Get to know other people within the body of Christ here in our area. What an important thing that is. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for that opportunity. Pray you bless it and prepare our hearts for it this evening as well. And bless this food to our bodies over in the fellowship hall afterwards. And bless our fellowship. Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that this may be the morning that they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.